This is Eric Ludi, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time and see the church of Jesus Christ built strong and stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this message is an encouragement to your soul. Two weeks ago, I gave a message called The Ethics of AI, and it was a rather um, daring message considering I'm not really an expert on AI. And yet, I have a burden that many of you share, and that is knowing how to properly address the times in which we live with the truth of the kingdom of heaven. Because we could stare out at a world around us, and there's a lot of different responses we could have. But there is one response that is defined by the kingdom of heaven itself, by the word of God, that we are supposed to have. And that's what I want to sponsor in our midst. I want to sponsor the thinking, the behaving of believers. And so you may be one that is fascinated by the trivial details of the movements of darkness in our age. And some of you might be of the disposition to stick your head in the sand and want to ignore all the movements of darkness in our age. And so we probably have both poles represented here fairly well. And what I want us to be is Christians in the midst of the hour in which we have been assigned. You didn't choose to be alive today. God chose for you to be alive today. And he has entrusted you with truth. He has awakened your soul so that you could be a light that shines in the midst of darkness. So for us as a body and us as individuals, this is something that I want us to grapple with so that when challenges do arise, which they do, even if our nation was headed in the right direction, you still will have challenges that will arise in your life. And so when those challenges arise in your life, I want you to be able to address them the way Jesus has assigned you to address them. And so that's a little premise for where we're going today. Uh, the title of today's message, The Most Spectacular Thought. Uh, don't you sort of want to poke at that brain in the picture? It just looks squishy. Uh, and, uh, but I, I don't want to, you know, just maybe I, I shouldn't go out on the limb and say this has the potential to be one of your all-time favorite messages. This is so intriguing to me. I mean, I'm trying not to play puns on the, on the name, The Most Spectacular Thought, but it really is a powerful meditation. And it has greatly impacted me over this week. And I've recognized that there's also been a lot of spiritual battle over my life as I've been meditating upon this. And so whenever that happens, you sort of feel like you struck gold. And I, I sense that something significant is here this morning. And I want us to all lean in with expectancy to take hold of it. So as I was just talking about uh, addressing the uncomfortable issues, there are a lot of issues that I could bring up and name my sermons after that would, uh, I'm sure, get clicks uh, uh, you know, in my podcast. And that isn't the way I like to do things as a pastor. I like to address things in a way that most people aren't expecting. I, I like to hit things from a different angle 
and I purposely do that. That's just my, my bent is, you know, if you're expecting something from Eric, like I put up a title, then I usually want to shock your soul by coming in from a completely different vantage point on it. Here's the question that I'm dealing with. How do we as the church maintain the excellence of the interior life? Here's some examples. Joy, peace, supernatural calm, outward focus, love, kindness, generosity, total givenness, and at the same time, properly prepare for the unknown obstacles up ahead. You see, what oftentimes happens is when you sense that a storm is coming, you think of yourself. I mean, all, all we have to do is go back a few years to COVID uh, and its invasion into our country. And instead of an evangelistic fervor awakening within the church, a you know, hole up and, you know, store up your own toilet paper uh, concept started to be cultivated in our midst, which is the exact opposite of Christianity. You can't even get further from it. The Christian is ready to give away their toilet paper as opposed to hoard their toilet paper. They're willing to walk through the aisles of the supermarket and say, no, you can take it as opposed to grab it ahead of everyone else though it is very difficult when you have, as some of you understand, big families. And do you remember the rules during COVID-19? It was really interesting to see the, uh, the grocery stores attempting to handle some of these issues of people clearing shelves uh, because everyone was limited. You could have one thing of milk. I don't remember all the different things because I've tried to block it out of my brain somewhat, but there were limitations. And what I wanted to wear on the front of my shopping cart was, I have eight people in my family and two dogs. You know, how about you? As the single guy goes through and can get the exact same stuff I'm getting. It seemed unfair and unjust, but that's the great test for the Christian. How do we respond in that moment? Do we get disgruntled? Do we get upset? Or do we rejoice? You see, God has given us a program to enter into and to step into that no matter the circumstances, we can thrive. Now, let me repeat that because some of you don't totally agree or believe that. You do intellectually, like theologically, but I don't know if you do practically. No matter the challenge, no matter the difficulty, God has given us something to step into a program that we can thrive in the midst of it. No matter how dark it is, no matter how difficult it is, God has designed us to be victorious in the midst of challenge. So we're going to go back quite a few years, but some of you are going to expose your gray hair by knowing what I'm referring to here. There was a movie that came out, I believe it was the mid-70s, and it was called A Thief in the Night. You guys remember that one? Now, now some of you, I mean, you were born, you know, 40 years after the fact, and it doesn't stand out to you at all. However, if you were raised in that era, you know, I'm 53... I had night terrors. Why I even saw this movie, I'm not exactly sure, but it was a good Christian movie. It's one of the first Christian movies. I mean, who, who ever heard of a Christian movie? And so this is about the tribulation, the end times, and it showed Christians screaming as they were being led to their end. And it so disturbed me, you know, as the church is being readied for the coming difficulties of persecution. Now, all I can say in hindsight is that is so far off from the way a Christian handles their end. And as far as I'm concerned, this whole thing was inspired by the devil to start with. It's like, what kind of preparation for the church is that? To give a false picture of how a Christian handles their difficulty. Screaming? 
You want to know how damaging that is to a young soul? It took me years to overcome that to the point where if anyone started talking about a tribulation, I would shut down. I didn't want to hear about that. Now, I, one of the things I've said to our students is, okay, let's get the right glasses on. It's not our end, end times. You know, it's not our end. It's Satan's end. Just perspective right there, guys. Who's scared? Who should be panicking? Uh-huh. Not you. You see, the enemy is afraid of the end, and he just sort of wants to share that with you. However, it is a new beginning for all of us, and so technically, on paper, we should all be excited for the end. I mean, just think about that. Who wouldn't want to have life eternal with God Almighty face to face? Oh, it's going to be good. And guess what? The end is almost like, you know, Christmas Eve. You know, when it's like you have the anticipation of something you've always looked forward to just around the bend. So the thief in the night, that's what's up on the screen, the constant barrage of bad news and coming doom. Okay, now this is a delicate topic because there really is bad stuff happening in the world. And there are two ex extreme opposites, opposite ways of which we could handle it as Christians. One is to fixate on it. The other is to totally ignore it. And you could say, well, uh, yeah, you could have your opinion on which way is best. And yet what I'm going to say is mysterious option number three is what we're supposed to do, which is to be wise and understanding of the times in which we live, but to appropriate those times with joy and expectation, hope and thanksgiving. That we know that we have been assigned a task right now, that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness, and he isn't caught off guard by the darkness of the age going, oh no, what are my people going to do? He has supplied us everything that his people need to be able to do precisely what they were called to do right now. If you catch that, it gets you excited about the times in which you live, as opposed to depressed. And I understand how easy it is to get depressed when you look out at the world today. It doesn't seem to be heading in a healthy direction. In fact, some of us would say, well, that was the understatement of the century, Eric. It's going over a cliff, yeah, and I'm not going to argue. However, where is the church at? That's what matters to me. Did God's truth erode because of the choices of this world? Because the world is headed in the wrong direction, is God like falling to pieces? Is his truth dismantled? Is his kingdom powerless? Did he slip off the throne? If that's happening, I agree. We have every reason to be anxious and fearful. But if he, our God, is still seated on his throne and all things are beneath his feet and he has given us exceeding great and precious promises, one being that he will turn all that the enemy has meant for evil and he will weave it into a good picture, that he will turn all things for good for those who Love him and are called according to his purpose. Right there. You can just take one promise and rest on it for all of eternity. So my daughter, Avi, is there. I have a big portion of my family in California right now, and they've been bragging about the fact that it's like 60, 70 degrees. Meanwhile, this has to be the coldest stretch in Colorado history. And they just happen to be gone Thursday to Tuesday evening. 
It's like, is that cheating or what? That's when I want to be there. You know that feeling of being on a vacation and you look at the weather app from back home, you're like, oh, now that was a well-placed vacation. That's what they're feeling right now. And of course, those of us that are still here are rejoicing. We're rejoicing because we're precisely where we should be right now to thrive, right? So gymnastics is an interesting parallel with what I'm talking about here. I watch Abby train four to five hours a day. Well, I don't watch her do it. I pick her up, uh, right, or drop her off or do whatever. I'm, I'm watching her do it from the fact that I know she's doing it. But gymnastics is based on form, tightness, movements, and it's a very delicate balance of someone who succeeds and someone who gets injured. It's a very dangerous sport. In fact, a lot of times you'll hear coaches that will say to the parents, it's like, yeah, just expect, you know, at least five ER visits, you know, in a, a career uh, for gymnastics. It's like, what kind of statement is that? And that's not actually helpful to a young gymnast to hear that, yeah, you're very likely going to break something uh, and it could happen at any moment. And so gymnastics is based on practice, practice, practice of correct movement or form. If you focus on the potential injury, just think about this. If you're on an apparatus where the wrong movement could lead to a very painful uh, sensation, and you focus on the possibility of error and the consequence of error, what does it do to your balance? It doesn't help you. So you don't focus on the failure. You don't focus on the potential danger or pain. You focus on the proper movement. And you practice it over and over again. If you focus on the potential injury, it psychologically destabilizes the balance, confidence, and tightness of the movements. And it makes you a bad gymnast. And so if you've ever had a, a fall in gymnastics, to overcome that fall is a very interesting psychological maneuver. It's sort of like the woman that's had a miscarriage. The next time she's pregnant, it's very easy to be distracted with the fact that she had a miscarriage before. And these are, this is the way humanity works, which is why God wants to have us enter into his program of confidence in him. So ugly and, and uncomfortable issues of our day. So we talked about AI two weeks ago. So the evil potential of AI. You know, if you just focus on the evil potential of AI, you don't get happier in life. It doesn't help you fulfill your purpose, you know, on that beam routine or that bar routine as a gymnast. It's not helping to actually fixate on what could happen, even though I'm not going to argue it could happen. The pending persecution for the church. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know how many of you have heard in your lifetime about the days in which we live and how dark they are. You know that ever since I've been alive, which you know is 53 years, it's, it's already on record in this sermon, right? I have heard that, that just around the bend, something terrible is going to come after me. Now, I am not going to doubt that. I've studied Christian history. I understand it very, very well. However, I've had 53 years where really that hasn't happened at any extreme level yet. And I could have just shut down at the age of four hearing this and given up hope. But I've had all these years to maximize and to utilize for the kingdom of heaven. And if you're afraid of a bad thing happening, a bad fall or bad injury because you stand boldly for Jesus, you'd never have done anything your entire life. 
So you have to recognize that there's a tactic of the devil to bring anxiety and fear to the forefront to shut down your Christian witness. And it just exists. Are there hazards? Yes, just like in gymnastics. There really are hazards. You know, we pray over uh, Abby all the time is that she wouldn't even strike her foot against a stone, that she would have angelic host about her as she does her movements. That's our prayer. Why not? Since it is part of the package that comes with knowing Jesus Christ as he cares for his children in every movement of their life. Who governs you? Who cares for your life? Walk in that understanding, not in the bluster of the enemy who's try, try, always trying to whisper in your ear, doom, terrible things that are just up ahead. The end times, how about this one? The mark. I don't even need to add the rest of that statement because I don't like it any more than you do. It's difficult as a leader to know how to actually walk through these issues in a way that doesn't bring paralysis to the audience. So let me walk through that because this is actually a big deal for Leslie and I. We've, we've traveled the world and we've spoken to, you know, I don't know how many, it could be well into the millions of people face-to-face -face in audiences. And what we used to do for the first season of our ministry is we traveled around and we spoke on relationships or sexuality. One of the most difficult topics you could talk about in the church is sexuality, and I'll tell you why. But handling the difficult matters, it demands wisdom. Now, one of the things we know as believers is that God will always supply the wisdom. So just because it demands wisdom doesn't mean we're, you know, left out. And it's like, oh, well, it demands wisdom. I guess I don't know what to do then. No, God promises to give wisdom to effectively address difficult matters. So the challenge of speaking about sexuality in the church Our commitment, this is what Leslie and I started with, because when you deal with certain topics, did you know that you can awaken the very thing you're speaking against in your audience, even by talking about it? And if you are going to awaken a problem inside of your audience by bringing up the issue to help them solve the problem, you're really sort of canceling out your efforts. And so one of our desires was to be able to address these issues and to not cultivate the wrong responses as we are talking about the issues, but to actually cultivate a right response. So our commitment has always been to not stumble our audience with lust and sensuality when addressing this important but delicate topic. So you can look back over all of our books, you can look back over all of our messages over the years and study that this is actually what we were attempting to do. And it is like walking a tightrope it is a very, very challenging issue to effectively address so that you are helping your audience as opposed to hindering. So let's talk about now the issues that I've been sort of stepping into in, you know, sticking my toe in going, okay, great. How are we going to do this? The challenge of speaking about readiness in the church. You see, I could just start giving a whole bunch of data about the world today. And I could strike terror in every one of you. Anxiety and fear would rule over this body, and yet anxiety and fear have zero placement in the kingdom of heaven. They don't belong. So if what I do actually sponsors a movement of the enemy in your soul, 
How exactly am I helping you? My entire desire is to strengthen you. But I want to strengthen you to be able to do your gymnastic routine with excellence, which means we need to exercise the proper movement. We need to have challenge in our life, and we have to overcome challenge. With the, the rise of gymnastics excellence, you're constantly moving to another tier of difficulty. And with that, you are practicing the same things, the same balance. Everything is just adding to it so that when you face your next difficulty, you face it, though it's difficult, with a confidence that you overcame the previous difficulty, I can now overcome this one. And that's any athlete. And so if you understand that spirituality is very similar, that God wants us to focus on our event. He wants to train us for godliness which is godly response, godly thought, godly uh, behavior, godly words spoken at every juncture of our life. That he doesn't want us to fall off the beam or the apparatus. He wants us to maintain a sharpness to the way that our movements, every one of them is being done in this body for his glory. So my commitment in this topic has always been to not stumble our audience with fear and anxiety when addressing this important but delicate topic. So you could listen to all my sermons in the past, any book I've written, and when I address the modern times in which we live, I'm blunt in saying it's not healthy. I'll even bluntly say the church isn't healthy. In other words, I'm not going to candy coat the wrong things, but I also want to always have hope rest in the cor corner, as a cornerstone of every one of our souls, that our God has not lost his power that he has not been dismissed from his authoritative position, that we have hope at every juncture, no matter how dark it may be outside, we know the light. And that is essential to walking through these difficult matters. My best thought by day or by night. I don't know if you guys have ever heard that statement. I know probably you have, but you're, you're like trying to place it. It's like, where is that from? Is that scripture? It's actually from a hymn called Be Thou My Vision. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me save that thou art. Thou, my best thought, by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence, my light. So years ago when I was writing down the vision for what Ellerslie is, I hand wrote this paper, I don't remember how long it was, and, but it was long, thick, and it was handwritten. Uh, and the very first words were those. That was something that, I mean, of course, I was writing out a vision for something, but I wanted this statement, that the very basis of what this was that God was stirring inside of me. And that was, he is my best thought, by day or by night. And anything that I am going to be a part of, I want it to be focused on Jesus Christ. So I had a chat with one of my good friends. His name is Aaron Vogel. And I know many of you know Aaron. And Aaron and I hadn't met for a long time. And so it was fun getting caught up. In fact, we were saying, okay, this probably needs to be installment one of like four. So we'll talk about like 
family and kids, you know, because when you're, when you have kids that are growing up, that's really what you want to talk about when you get together as dads, you know, because you want to get to the good stuff, like talk about vision, how we're going to change the world together, you know, the truth of Jesus, you know, all these things, but you always sort of have to check off that box. Like, so tell me about the kids. And of course, Aaron, if you know, his kids are always doing something fantastical too. So, uh, and then I'm always trying to match that, you know, say, but you know, my kids are pretty cool too. Uh, you know, so you have a lot of work to do just to get through that conversation. Uh, but it was really special. And, you know, at the very beginning of the year, because that's when this is all happening, that's when the sermon is coming out, we're at that New Year's resolution time. And I don't know, you guys have probably heard me make my comments about New Year's resolutions. You know, they, they sort of are embarrassing, you know, at, at a certain level. But there's part of us as humans that it's a right quality. It's just wrongly appropriated because we try and do something our own human gumption. And I can just tell you right now, you know, you could make all the resolutions you want to be a better person, but good luck outside the power of the Holy Spirit. But the fact that we desire to improve is very interesting to me because that is the work of the Holy Spirit and he sanctifies and he desires to carry us forward. He desires to mature us and we want to join in on that game plan which is what I would explain as a New Year's resolution, even though I do understand if you have a negative thought towards New Year's resolutions, where that would come from. And so I don't typically make New Year's resolutions in the classic sense. I reinforce or reinvigorate what I desire to do with my life. In other words, I want to go back to the basics and say, okay, Lord, fresh fire, fresh vision. I want to go deeper, onward and upward in this direction. And so th that was what was fun about our conversation. Yes, we did talk about kids and things like that, but one, something that was said triggered something in Aaron. And every year, I think for the last 10 years, he has waited on God for the first couple weeks of the year and asked God for his theme for the year. And you guys should ponder this. This is really interesting. Of course, this is where my message comes from too. And he, he meditates and, and prays about what his, what his theme should be. And one of his themes, and I don't remember how it came up, but he was telling me about a previous theme, and it was my best thought by day or by night. So, and this was how he described it. I think I have it here. Yeah, Aaron's annual theme. My best thought, not just the avoidance of a bad thought or merely a decent thought to replace a bad thought, but I want to pursue the very best thought and think that always. That was very intriguing to me. I remember just pondering as he was talking because I am, I've taught a lot about thought life. And this is one of those messages about thought life too. So I have quite a collection of messages on thought because to me, this is where it begins. In how we handle our thoughts is ultimately how we handle our life. And so if we're mishandling our thoughts or we're sloppy with our thoughts, we're ultimately sloppy with our life. And so if you want to change things, you change it right at that most uh, basic fundamental level of what's coming in. Are you allowing it in? Or are you stopping it at the door? Most people don't even know you can stop a, a thought at the door. And so, whoa, let's start right there then. This is, this is significant. This is important. And so here, listen to this thought that Aaron is saying, okay, it's not just that I, I want to not have bad thoughts because for many of us, we've had that thought, right? I, okay, I don't want to have bad thoughts. Bad thoughts, boo, they're, they're not healthy for my life. But many of us would just say the absence of a bad thought, you know, is enough for us. So that, that's a major accomplishment. I didn't have bad thoughts. Yeah, but what did you have? Because you still have thoughts. So what Aaron was saying is I don't want to just replace those with decent 
non-bad thoughts, but I don't even want them to just be good thoughts. I want them to be the best thought. In every situation, at every turn, I want to choose to upgrade my thought because it could just be that I have a neutral thought right now, but what if I took that moment and upgraded it to the best possible thought a human could have at this exact moment in time? So I've been pondering that. And, you know, I I came home after that meeting, and, you know, I should be thinking about, you know, what we talked about with our kids and and all that, but I'm thinking about this, which, of course, then I have a message called my most, the most spectacular thought following, just to, you know, show you where my thought has been. The importance of thought. Proverbs 23, 7. Now, it's speaking of the miser, you know, someone, you know, in, in Proverbs, it's warning you not to attempt to look at riches as the ultimate fulfillment in your life. Then it's talking about a miser. And so that's the context here, because this gets taken out of context. For as the miser thinks in his heart, so is he. Now, that's oftentimes been replaced with, for as the man thinks in his heart, so is he. And I wouldn't argue. It's not like it's a bad statement, because it's still true. There's something about the formation of who we are that starts in our internal realm and which starts with our thoughts. So when we allow something in, it becomes the formative dimension of our life. Who you are is based on what you are meditating upon. The importance of thought. The individual thought is the building block of every single human action, feeling, and word spoken. So that word that I speak, where does it come from? Well, it ultimately is gonna start with a thought. That behavior that you're going to see emanated out of my life, where does it come from? Well, it's going to start with a thought. And so these thoughts are the building blocks. And so when you're building properly, you actually construct an amazing collection or an amazing demonstration of words spoken, of behavior given, that it all stems from the right thoughts. If those building blocks are not of the godly variety, then the actions, feelings, and words proceeding from that life will not demonstrate God. So if the thinking dimension of your life is not aimed heavenward, then your life will not demonstrate heaven. Luke 6.45, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So you see the action following the formation of something internal. That formation of something internal is his thought life. And so he's either building up good treasure or evil treasure. Therefore, his words are either going to be good or evil, depending on what is internal. The gold bullion. Every thought is the fuel or the funding source for one kingdom or another. So when you have heavenly thoughts, it's amazing, but you are actually storing up capital for Christian behavior, for Christian words spoken, for Christian boldness and daring. But when you have evil thoughts or anxious thoughts or selfish thoughts, you are actually storing up strength to defy the kingdom of heaven. That isn't how it works. So you're actually investing in the wrong kingdom. You are increasing the strength of the wrong side of the equation. 
the most spectacular, because that, that's what's been in my head. The thing that stood out to me out of all that Aaron said was this idea of best thought. And now for me, I'm a word guy, right? And so for me, just best isn't as strong of a statement as the most spectacular thought. So in every situation, now I, I've been pondering this like almost nonstop all night long, you know, since I heard this. So have you ever had it where you're just rolling around in bed at night and every time you wake up, you're thinking about it. It's like, is this my most spectacular thought? What would my most spectacular thought be right now? And, you know, I do have an answer for that as we move forward. That's pretty obvious. And that's Jesus. But in every situation, there is an elevated thought. There is something that could go higher. And just like, you know, when God answers our prayer, he goes exceedingly and abundantly beyond all our, all our highest expectations, imaginations, or thinking. All that we could ask. Everything we could conjure, he still goes higher, which gets me excited. The most spectacular is even beyond what I know. But God, take me there. I don't want to linger down here in the lowlands. So you could apply this in multiple ways. The most spectacular thought, the most spectacular action. Like what in this situation would be the most spectacular action? Isn't that a weird thought? Because I could underbid. You know, I don't have a lot of strength and energy right now. There's someone who doesn't know Christ in front of me and I could just, you know, say, hey, God bless you. Or I could do something even more spectacular than that. You follow me? In other words, what would be the upgraded version of behavior in that situation? As opposed to just saying, hey, well, this is at least not selfish. It's sort of in that neutral territory of surviving in a darkened generation. Because if you say too much, if you do too much, you get the wrong feedback. And I'm not looking for that. I'm looking just to sort of fit in right now. But what is the most spectacular action. When I think of Jesus, he's always doing the most spectacular action. You ever notice that? He's always sort of picking a fight with the Pharisees. And if he was thinking it through the way we do, he would have definitely come in a little lower than that. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You're going to get killed if you do that. And he seems to have a twinkle in his eye as he does it. It's sort of like, yeah, I know. It's the whole purpose. What? What do you mean it's the whole purpose? You see, Jesus is headed somewhere. And he is after the most spectacular action. He is going somewhere that you have to admit, guys, he lived the most spectacular life. And the words he spoke were the most spectacular words. And the thoughts he had, the behavior he had, the feelings he had were the most spectacular. And then he has given us his Holy Spirit. And he says, there you go. So that you can live a spectacular life too. So thought, word, an action. When those words, you know, that are going to come off your lips, you know, there's, there's words that are really bad, right? And we know that. That was a wrong thing to say. And then there's sort of the lowercase uh, version of what you could say, too. Have you ever had it where you tame your words? You, you really are impressed with something and you want to encourage, but you don't want to encourage too much lest that person think highly of themselves. And so you sort of underbid with something. It's a very common thing even in parenting because you, don't, you want to encourage your kids, but you know, hey, you, know, you need to keep them working hard. You don't want them to think that they've arrived. And so you underbid just a little to keep them honest and to keep them working hard. 
whatever it is, we can actually choose to go less spectacular. But what if we chose to go to the most spectacular? Philippians 4, 6 through 9. Now, this is an incredible summation of everything I'm saying right here. And we all are familiar with this, but I want you to just listen to it afresh. Be anxious for nothing. Now, just think about that. In light of the world around you, be anxious for nothing. Doesn't that seem a little extreme? I mean, excuse me, uh, but Eric, you need to realize Paul probably didn't understand the trials and the tribulations we were going to be facing. Doesn't he understand what it's like to live under this president? I mean, this administration, this whole situation, doesn't he understand? Oh, I think he understands far better than we realize. In fact, I think the administration he was under was a lot more dark than ours. And he says, be anxious for nothing. This guy's in prison as he says this, guys. Be anxious for nothing. Okay, now there's a replacement. Remember how I said there's a behavior that doesn't involve us. That there's a behavior of this world that we do not enter into. We need to step into God's program. Paul's going to outline that right here. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So in the midst of the darkest, most harrowing days the church could ever face, we could have the peace of God guarding our hearts. Oh, doesn't that sound nice? It is Christianity. That's how we live. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, Whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. I could have just summarized, whatever is most spectacular, that's what you fix your mind on. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. You want the peace of God to govern you? Do as Paul did. Do as Paul is teaching. This is the program, guys. We are meant to step into it, to not allow the anxieties that everyone else in this world may face outside of Jesus to even be able to touch our souls. We are meant to be immune to anxiety and fear. It does not have a grip on us. It's like water off a duck's back. Oh, I felt something. Oh, I guess that was anxiety just trying to make its way in. But we do not absorb it. The world will throw its best at us. But we are meant to be built as believers for such an hour as this. What if you took this next year and made this your daily goal? How might it change your entire life? Now, I, believe me, I understand. You know, when I say your most spectacular thought, always. Don't you get a little intimidated by that? It's like, well, there's a lot that happens in a year. Yeah, if you just took that for one day, you'd recognize that it's hard to exercise it. And you have such an amazing propensity to go into a bad thought. They're very attractive to our natural man. I have no idea why an anxious thought is more easy for us to give way to than a spectacular thought of God's control over all things. And yet it is. So that's where 
the invasion of the Holy Spirit is necessary in your life to recognize that apart from him, you can't do this, which is sort of the summation of all Christianity. Guys, how did you think you were going to live out this life? Faithful is he who has called you who also will do it. You see, you have been called to something, a program, as I'm, I'm saying, Paul's program, and yet you haven't been left bereft and you're not left to just dig in your own pockets and figure this out in your own. You're meant to come before God and say, God, that's what I yield to. That's what I accept. That's what I desire. Please do this in and through me. And the Holy Spirit desires to be intimately acquainted with every movement of your heart and mind, every word that comes out where he will temper it. And he'll say, what was that? <laughs> he'll hint and say, hey, a uh, little conviction here because that's the wrong direction. And he will, like a shepherd, keep us on the straight and narrow with his rod and he'll tap our fluffy backside. As we as a lamb begin to veer a little to the right or too much to the left, he'll keep us on a straight and narrow if you desire it. And so if you desire that, you can know that your God is always aiming you towards the most spectacular. Always. So guys, I know this is somewhat of a spoiler uh, giveaway. Uh, you know, because I could have built this up a little further in, but I already gave it away earlier too. The most spectacular thought your brain could ever have, what you could meditate upon is actually Jesus. He is the highest thought. And now, Practically speaking, it's not just always Jesus, even though it is. It's Jesus in this arena. Jesus in this part of my life. Jesus' work on the cross applied to this failure. Jesus applied to this relationship. Jesus applied to my financial challenge that I'm facing. Jesus applied to the current administration. What does that look like? And that's part of what we learn to walk in as the believer is as we begin to seek that which is noble, that which is right, that which is pure, that which is praiseworthy, God teaches our inner man to look up instead of down. Remember Amy Carmichael's famous statement, two men stare through prison bars, one sees mud, the other stars. You see, you could be in a difficult situation. I mean, prison bars is a pretty bad situation, right? And most people are gonna see the mud as they stare out. They stare down. What does Paul see? He sees stars. And then he invites us, say, guys, you need to see this. Get behind some prison bars. Hey, it's going to be a blessing to you because you can look up in that time and see something amazing. God is still on the throne. He is in control and he's going to leverage this into a greater strength in your life. When you're weak, his strength is proven through that weakness. Rejoice. The most spectacular action, Jesus it's the action of Jesus. When the Holy Spirit is working through us with the most spectacular action, what is seen? Jesus. The most spectacular word spoken. When we use our mouth to speak words, there is no higher word than something that reveals Jesus, something that carries along the message of Jesus, something that carries along the character of Jesus, the nature of Jesus. Anything that reveals Jesus is the highest use of the human frame, the highest use of the human mouth, the highest use of the human brain, the highest use of the human life. You want to start entering into God's program, you need to recognize that you have been given an assignment. And it is impossible, I'm not gonna argue, but it's not impossible for God in you. And that is the great secret of the Christian, to recognize, okay, I can't do that, 
but he can. Jesus is the founder of the most spectacular thought, action, and word spoken. So he's the creator of the heavens and the earth, and he's the creator of this most spectacular life. He is the one that is sponsoring it in you. He came to establish life inside of you, to sponsor it, to encourage it, to strengthen it. The church at large is not showing anything spectacular, guys. In fact, it's very unimpressive. And many of us, when we look at our own lives, are, you know, we'd love to cluck our tongue that direction, but this isn't that spectacular either. And so if I could have one desire for this upcoming year, it's that we start going after the spectacular again. We don't accept the mediocre. We don't just say, oh, I guess this is what God intended to do in this generation. But we respond in our inner man to say, Lord, I want something greater. I want you to be seen in this life, and whatever is blockading that, remove it. Pray a bold prayer. Maybe more bold than you've ever prayed before because we don't have a lot of time to be sitting around twiddling our thumbs with mediocre praying. We got a job to do in this earth. This is our hour. This is when you would want to be alive. In your darkest place of compromise, Jesus has a spectacular thought. Now, this is a, this is a really fun, I don't want to say twist, but application of it. You see, I'm encouraging all of us to have a more spectacular thought, more spectacular action, more spectacular uh, words spoken. But Jesus is the founder of that. And so oftentimes when the devil gets us into a place, a dark place of compromise, what do we hear? We don't hear the spectacular thought of Jesus, the spectacular word of Jesus, and we don't understand the spectacular action of Jesus. Instead, what we hear is the enemy saying, give up. You know, look at you, Christian, and yet you still compromised. See, the enemy is all over that situation with condemnation, but condemnation, like fear and anxiety, is not meant to stick to us as a believer. We're meant to have a more excellent thought, which ironically, in your compromised moment, is not that easy, because the enemy's thought makes a lot more sense with our natural man. We're a pile of junk, and yet that's not God's thought towards us. That God's more spectacular, most spectacular thought is he looks at our situation and he says, I can turn that. If you humble yourself and give it to me, I'll heal. I'll restore. You see, he gives mercy. The most spectacular thought is a God of mercy, a God of redemption, a God that takes our blunders and turns them into beauty. A God that takes our ash and transforms it into something spectacular. That's what you need to know in your moment of compromise. I'm not encouraging compromise, and I'm not cheering on compromise. What I'm saying is we need to remember that in the time of compromise and in that dark place, Jesus has a spectacular thought towards us. In your darkest place of relational challenge, you ever had one of those relationships that there's no hope for? It's like, well, boy, I just can't imagine that anything good can come out of that. And Jesus has a spectacular thought in that moment. Uh, something great could come out of this. See, could you hand it to me? I, I would love to have that clay. I, I will shape something magnificent with it. But you see, we need to agree with Jesus' spectacular thought. In our darkest compromise, in our, in our dark place of relational challenge, 
How about in our dark place of financial impossibility? Jesus has a spectacular thought. In fact, sometimes we wonder if he's sort of happy that we have this financial impossibility. It's like, God, this is miserable. It's like, I have a spectacular thought about your financial impossibility. And that is that I am Jehovah Jireh. I have seen this way ahead of time, Eric. And I have made provision for you. Just rest in that so that the peace of God can govern your heart. There's no place for anxiety in the kingdom of heaven. If you know that your God is in control, having spectacular thoughts towards you. How about in your darkest place of physical weakness? If you have a physical ailment, a physical trial, a physical challenge, oh, that can be such a weight upon your soul. And just to imagine that Jesus has a spectacular thought. Just like Paul, he says, so most gladly I'll rejoice in my infirmity. You remember that? That's in the, the, the little statement about his thorn. Why is he saying that? Because God is going to speak to him and says, he's going to say, my grace is sufficient for you. That I will give you everything. You need something, you get it. And when you have weakness, you get more of it. And so when we are weak, we get more. And so God is going to give us his most spectacular thought in our time of weakness. How about in our darkest place of persecution, betrayal, abuse? So in that little enunciation, you could put a lot. You could say, okay, imagine I'm imprisoned because I'm a pastor, a crazy pastor. Now, I have a wife and I have kids and maybe they cut off all finances to my family. That's a hard moment for Eric, right? And yet, am I able to hear the most spectacular thought in that moment to recognize that Jesus is ready to tell me, I'm with you, Eric. I'll never leave you. I'll never leave your wife, your kids. As you follow me, I care for my people. He fed Elijah out of a brook and from a raven's mouth when he was under duress and under persecution. God can bring bread out of heaven when necessary. Our God is able. The question is, are we believers? Do we believe that God looks at every circumstance that we face and has a spectacular thought towards it? And what if we were to join with him and have a spectacular thought as well? Well, simply put, we'd be the happiest people on earth. We would be, have our hearts governed by the peace of God. We would be able to rejoice in all things. We'd be able to give thanks in all things. Why? Because we've entered into the most spectacular thought the life of Jesus. Philippians 2.5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So Christ Jesus is having spectacular thoughts all around us, right? Every single thing we go through, he has a spectacular thought, smiling the whole time, saying, no, rejoice, give thanks. Like what? How could, how could you ask me to do that in such a difficult situation? Because I take difficult situations and I turn them for good, always. So let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So we're familiar with that, Philippians 2.5. And of course, there's a lot of context around that, which is brilliant and beautiful. But I'm just wanting us to see this one little statement here. Let this, instead of mind, which is phreneo, it's the outlook on life. It's the way you appropriate things. Let this spectacular thought be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. I don't know what sort of thinking you've been having lately. 
Some of you might be caught a little too deeply in the darkness of our age and the thoughts as a result feel weighed down inside of you. They feel heavy and you're having a tough time sleeping at night. You know, it's, it's not easy uh, being a parent if you sense that one of your children, you know, is, you know, flirting with things they shouldn't be and it's hard to sleep at night. You know, I want you to know that every single thing that could weigh down on your soul Jesus has a spectacular answer for it. And for us, we're called believers. I, I know it's, it's, it's sometimes lost on us, but our entire job description is to believe. It's to believe that he is able, that he is good, that he is love, that he sees my circumstances, that he has not forsaken me, that he will be with me always, even to the end of the age. That's where I rest which is why I can be the happiest person on earth. Which is why we as the body of Christ should have no parallel on earth when it comes to cheer and joy and outward focus because we can risk everything by focusing on the world around us because we know God will care for us. This is our great secret in a dark hour. Praise God that we have a dark hour because it will cause us to actually grow spiritually. If you've ever, ever had just an easy season in your life, you can answer the question for me, did it grow you stronger spiritually? It's funny because we would, I think most of us would be like, I'd, I'd rather not grow spiritually and have an easy season. Technically, you don't. If you're going to have the most spectacular thought, then you're going to say, Lord, I trust you. And it's actually in and through my difficulties that I gain more grace and I grow stronger spiritually. And so, Lord, I'm not asking for more difficulties, but I will thank you for the difficulties because they are an instrument of grace unto my life and through my life. The Olympic coach. So the boys and I that are home, you know, in this cold weather while Leslie is enjoying very warm temperatures, uh, we, we went through a, well, we didn't make it all the way through. We, we sort of picked a few moments in it, but it was a, an Olympic documentary back in 1984. 1984 is like this one Olympics that I really remember. You know, it's the Mary Lou Retton, Carl Lewis uh, Olympics. And for whatever reason, uh, I've always enjoyed this one documentary. It's called 16 Days of Glory. And, you know, the mentality behind it isn't necessarily a Christian, 16 Days of Glory. Whose glory? You know, it's definitely man's glory in this situation. But one of the things that is, always stands out with me in, in studying Olympic training is I can't help but see the parallel uh, for us as believers. And when I think of an Olympic coach taking this rough-hewn athlete, and they can look at this athlete and say, okay, there's something great here. But for that athlete to enter into that greatness of athletic achievement, they must commit, they must give themselves at a higher level of givenness than the average human. Now, this is what I've noticed in the church, is we have a tendency to back away from full givenness because we see it as either unnecessary or some of us are afraid that it might be considered works, you know, in our life. And we don't, oh, I'm not saved by that. And so we withhold from God a full givenness. Like, I'm here, train me all day long, every day. The greatest athletes are the ones that literally train all day. And we could say, what a waste of a life. They could be giving it to Jesus. I agree. But are we giving our life to Jesus like an athlete gives their life to a sport? 
And what if we did is my key question. And so imagine that I was a, a coach and I was barking at you back in the classic uh, sense, you know, because now coaches have to be very nice lest they get a lawsuit against them. But back in the olden days, you know, the Bobby Knight days, if any of you guys remember Bobby Knight, well, these guys were mean. Uh, and they would yell and bark and criticize and, you know, challenge, get their uh, athlete mad to prove back that they could do it. But just imagine that I had some kind of barking relationship with you that was healthy, right? And I could yell really loud at your soul and you would say, yes, that's what I want. And you would give yourself to, you'd recognize that all of these challenges, all of these pains are refining a world-class athlete, or in our case, a world-class believer. How can you expect to compete at this level without immense amounts of practice? Okay, well, what's your expectation as far as a Christian? Like, say darkness comes, say the challenge comes, say, say the, the great Olympic theater awakens for you and you're pressed out into that theater. Of course, for us as Christians, the arena usually includes like lions and wild beasts that are ready to tear us apart. But this is our arena. This is our day, the spectacle where we literally can step out and show Jesus Christ. How in the world do you plan to prepare for that? You see, every athlete knows that to reach that day, they need to give themselves, give themselves, train, 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 focus, 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 practice, practice, practice. What are we thinking today? This is one of the great challenges we face as the body of Christ today. Is there such a lethargy over us, such a sleepiness over us, that even a pastor can't even come in and say, get your game on without offending and you know, having people feel like they were just attacked somehow. But if we don't get our game on, we will not be ready for that day and we will cower and we will shrink back from death and we will fail instead of succeed. How can you expect to win at this level? This level that you are desiring to live at, this level that you are desiring to showcase Jesus at, how can we expect to win at this level unless we take this opportunity sitting right in front of us seriously? We have an opportunity right now it's called living life in the 21st century and having all of the noise around us that is saying cower, 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 shrink back, shrink back, shrink back. And instead of listening to that nonsense, we listen to the word of God and we enter into what I was calling Paul's program. Have this mind in you, have this most spectacular thought in you that was in Christ Jesus. Did he shrink back? Did he cower? Was it weighty? Yes. Was it painful? Oh, yes. But it was also triumphant. And this is what I want us to step into. I want us to step into a grander version of living. Father, we acknowledge our inability apart from you. Lord, apart from you, we can't do this. We can't bear fruit. But Lord, we are not desirous to live a life apart from you. We're desirous to live a life infilled by you, overtaken by you, empowered by you. That is what we yearn for. We yearn for true Christianity, victorious, triumphant Christianity. Lord, please work within us, move within us. Change us, remove obstacles, Lord. Convict us where we need conviction. Exhort us where we need exhortation. 
We love you, Lord Jesus. You are our most excellent thought. It's in the precious name we pray this. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. If you'd like to learn more about Ellerslie, our discipleship programs, or support the ministry financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn more.